We're in Genesis 39 this morning, which is uh, the joy of historical books is sometimes you have long chapters for one event. So uh, bear, please, with the reading of God's Word. All right. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he fell, uh, sorry, left, so he left all that he had in Joseph's care. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. And as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. 
whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, according to the riches of your glory, grant that we would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inmost being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, that we may be rooted and grounded in love, and we may have strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we might be filled with the fullness of God. And so accomplish this through the reading and preaching of your word. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. While we were up in Sedona in the Grand Canyon, I kind of learned something about myself that I guess I may have forgotten. Is that when I look at beautiful things, I prefer to look up rather than looking down. I had a lot of fear at the Grand Canyon, not just that my kids would, uh, you know, be over-exuberant and get too close to the edge, but even myself, I get, I get a little bit of vertigo getting too close to those edges. I prefer to look up at splendor and glory. But sometimes when we're down in the pit, it does not look too glorious, does it? I was thinking this week as uh, kind of going through, looking through Joseph, and, and I've, I've begun to reread the, the Hiding Place by Corrie Ten Boom. And uh, one of the things that they experienced in the midst of the prison camp, Ravensbrook, that you can imagine would be a common plague, would be fleas and lice. Very common. And there's this one portion of, of, of the story, well, not story, but of events, when they're discouraged and they're realizing from, they're reading Philippians and, and they're like, we have to praise God, we have to give thanks at everything. And so among the things they gave thanks for were the fleas and the lice. Now we would see the fleas and the, and the, and the lice as something, as a hardship. But they eventually got a bigger picture of, it was good that the fleas and the lice were there. Because they realized that it was the fleas and the lice that kept the guards far away. And it was because of that that they were able to read and discuss the scriptures from the smuggled Bible that they had in their hands. We're going to look at that today, that whole idea, how God uses the hardships in our lives in a good way in our experience. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus is with us in temptation and affliction. That's something we tend not to want to think a whole lot about, um, temptation and affliction, and yet he's there. He's present. He's with us. Verses 1 through 6, we see that God is with those he loves despite their circumstances. This passage has to be seen in the context of the preceding text, of the story of Judah, He's really focusing on a contrast between Judah and Joseph. One is in the world and of the world. The other is in it, but not of it. Joseph is in stark contrast to his older brother. We see that Joseph 
Remember, his brothers are the ones who sold them to the Midianite traders, who brought them down into Egypt, who sold them now to Potiphar. And Potiphar is the captain of the guard. This means that he is a very influential and important member of the palace staff. It was not just to some you know, poor cobbler or whatever that he was sold, but he is placed in a very important position which will matter in the future. And so Joseph, as a slave, is under difficult circumstances. But Moses wants us to know that he was not forsaken by God. For we see repeatedly this phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. In the midst of our difficult circumstances, it is very difficult for us to see that, to recognize that, to believe that. Let's go back to the Tembo, to uh, Corey Temboom's story. For those of you who, who have never heard that name, uh, her family during World War II hid Jews from the Germans in Holland and Harlem. When all this begins, it, it's hard for me to remember, you know, not remember, but to, to realize that Corey was 50 when all of this happened. Okay? She was not a young woman when this took place. And so her father was very elderly. He was in his 70s and possibly 80s. We don't really know. She doesn't really say at that point in time. And so initially when they're caught, they're placed in a holding cell, and they are there for 10 days. And she is alone. She's lost touch with her family, the family that she has always lived with. Keep that in mind. Her father has always been, she lives, she and her her older sister took care of their father, in his old age. She had never married. She had always been in the family house. And her sister had a heart ailment. And so she also took care of her older sister. All of her life, she has been in the presence of these people. And now, she's alone. And so she cries out through the, the, the window and the door, calling, are they out there? She's calling for her father. She's calling for her sister. Does anyone know where Betsy is? And finally... She hears, not from Betsy, but from someone else. Betsy is in cell 312. She says, God is good. She's in a holding cell by the Germans, and she recognizes the presence and the goodness of God, Betsy does. When we're in the midst of of these difficult times, We don't see God, and so we mistakenly believe that he is not there. And we need the reality of, we need to be reading places like the story of Joseph to remember God is there. His presence as a slave did not mean that God had forsaken him, that God had forgotten him, but God was with him. Not only do our own hearts struggle to believe this, but we have an enemy, the evil one, Satan, who does not want us to believe that it is possible for God to be with us. He wants us to deny God's goodness. One of the horrible things that happened in those ten days in the holding area was that her father died. And she read of this just before she had her hearing with the German officer. And the German officer also knew. And so he, like Satan, mocked her. What kind of God would have let an old man die here in Scheveningen? Sorry, German, don't do it. 
Okay? They make these long words out of things. Okay, he's, he's saying, how would God, what kind of God would allow this old man to die in this jail? He's attacking her faith. And so Satan attacks our faith in the midst of hardship. How could God bring you here? What kind of God would do this to you? Surely not a God who loves you. Let's think of Joseph for a moment. Joseph was, as we see here in the text, a house slave. As opposed to the ones who did the manual labor outside. The archaeologists who've dug up and they found all of these documents realized that, one, there was an active slave trade that took people from Asia and down into Egypt. And secondly, that those Asian slaves were predominantly the ones who were the household slaves, whereas the Egyptian slaves were the ones who did the manual labor outside. Completely in keeping with what we see in Scripture. Okay? And what happens is that everything he puts his hand to is successful. God prospers Joseph even as a slave. It was so significant that even Potiphar noticed there was a discrimination, so to speak. He could recognize the difference between what happened when Joseph did something and when someone else did the same or similar thing. And what did he want? He wanted more of what Joseph did. And so he elevates Joseph. Joseph finds favor, he finds grace in the eyes of Potiphar because God has been blessing Joseph through his presence. So even though Joseph is in prison, it's not prison yet, sorry, but even though he is enslaved, we see that God's blessing is upon him. Good things happen here. And we see amazing things as well when we think of uh, Corey and her brother uh, and her sister, Betsy. That Bible that they would read in Ravensbrook, it's amazing that they even had it in the first place. Because when they got to the camp, what they were supposed to do is they were supposed to be completely stripped and, and be processed. Well, how do you hide a Bible? Kind of hard. And they had it, but initially they had smuggled it into the, um, the holding cells originally, and it was in a little bag that would go around the neck. And so what happened is that somehow they were able to um, distract the guards to the point where Corey was able to slip it over her neck and it would be under her dress. Well, what do you think is going to happen when you have a big Bible hanging around your neck? It's a big bowl kind of thing. And here they are, Corey's in line, Betsy's behind her, and Corey is watching the guards frisk everybody. In fact, she noticed, notes that the, person, the woman in front of her was, was patted down three times. And yet, for some strange reason, she does never get checked. She's able to walk by, and then the guard then goes right to her sister and pats her down. They were able to smuggle in a Bible so that they could read and remember who God was in the midst of their hardship, in the midst of their testing, of their affliction. Of this, she says, rich 
in this new evidence of the care of him who was the God even of Ravensbrook. She did not see the concentration camp, even though it was a hellish experience, as some place outside of the presence and sovereignty of God, but she knew that he too was God of that place. Just as God was the God of the Egyptians over Egypt and the house of Potiphar, and he is the reason that Joseph gets elevated. He was not just the God of Canaan. And so we see that Potiphar makes him overseer of his whole house. Everything is controlled now by Joseph. Everything that happened within the house and within the field was managed by Joseph. Everything. In fact, he uses a strange phrase later that, that I'm even above Potiphar. That Potiphar withheld nothing from my hand. Joseph has power and control. And so what happens is that God, because he blessed Joseph, God is now blessing Potiphar. What we see in Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, is once again taking place in history. This man is being blessed because he blesses Joseph. Those who embrace us as the seed, as those who are united to Christ, as we we read about in Galatians chapter 3, those who embrace us will also experience the blessing of God, but the converse is also true. Those who curse God's people will experience God's curse. We see Israel in the future is going to prosper in Egypt despite the oppression, just as Joseph here is prospering prospering despite the oppression of slavery. We have to recognize that in Christ, the church is also going to prosper in the midst of affliction. That's part of why this is here. To teach us, to instruct us, that affliction does not mean that God has abandoned us, but that God is with us, that God will bless us. Not in the ways we expect, but in accordance with his gospel promises. So God blesses even unbelievers, not in a saving way, but he blesses even even unbelievers through those who believe if we don't assimilate. We, like Joseph, need to be in but not of the world. That's where he stands in a stark contrast to Judah, who was not a blessing to those who were around him. So in hardship, we often lose sight of God, but he has not lost sight of us. As the scripture says, he is with us. Never will he leave us. Never will he forsake us. Move the second part of this. I feel like I've spent too much time on that one. Temptation comes to teach us obedience. We sometimes look at temptation as a bad thing. Well, it is bad. But God uses it for good purposes, to teach us to obey. There was trouble brewing in Potiphar's house. Potiphar may have been a eunuch. We don't know. But because he was the chief of the palace guard, if he had contact, regular contact with the harem, it's most likely he would have been made a eunuch. So this may explain his wife's actions, but it may not. 
Okay, But we see that Joseph was handsome. He was a good-looking guy. He was kind of like a hunk, I guess. I don't know. But Moses is stressing his appearance. And he, no- and he stresses that, she- that he catches her eye. She notices Joseph. Now, let's think of the context of slavery for a moment. One of the things that has, has happened everywhere slavery has been is that owners tend to take advantage of their slaves. What she is about to do, what she is suggesting, would be par for the course in the life of an attractive slave, male or female. They would take liberties with the slaves. She is no different. She is anonymous. We don't have her name. We have her husband's name, not her name. All The only thing that matters here is her sin. All that matters is that, she, that he caught her eye. There's two words. And she is filled with lust. And she gives basically the brazen equivalent of phrases that we would use today. One of which, well, we're not going there. But it's a very crass way of approaching him. For this. this is bestial. This is not love. This is ugly lust that is taking place, that has filled her heart, that has captured her. But notice Joseph's response. How can I do this wicked thing and sin against God? Now, think about this for a moment. We don't know how old Joseph is at this point. He's somewhere probably about 20 to 25. He's a single man who has no legitimate um, way to express the normal desires of youth. Okay, This is not a woman coming on to a really old man. The fact that Joseph has restraint is important here. The context in which we see Joseph displaying this constraint is very important for us to take into consideration. He sees it for what it is. Sin. That he would be committing adultery, he recognizes. He refuses to take advantage of this situation for his own pleasure as she would. And now there is something here that people don't get. Increasingly, people don't understand in our culture as it turns more and more away from God. Joseph doesn't make sense to them. They would look at this and kind of go, hey, either she's a young vixen or she's a cougar. Who cares? Why not? Well, Joseph lived with an eye toward God. And as a result, what God thought was more important than what he wanted or desired. I can remember when I was working at the rescue mission, 
down in, in Orlando. Right across the, the, the street, there was a boarding house, and there was a bar called Good Time Charlie's. And I wrote a song about that one time. Does anybody have a good time at Good Time Charlie's? And as you can imagine, in a flop house, there was prostitution. And the guys across who would come, and they'd spend some nights at the rescue mission, and they couldn't fathom the fact that I didn't do that. Because for them, that was ordinary, normal, standard operating procedure. Everybody did that. Everybody took some of what they earned in the course of the week and paid money for a prostitute. And they couldn't fathom why I wouldn't. Because it was an eye toward God. That what God thought of something and thought of me was far more important than what I wanted and what I thought I needed. But Satan, what, one of the many things that he does is that he, he tempts us to try and use hardship as an excuse to minimize our sin, to just kind of say, well, I deserve this. My life is hard, so I deserve this moment of pleasure. One of the interesting things that Corey Ten Boom says in the midst of uh, the hiding place is this. Oh, this was the great ploy of Satan in that kingdom of his to display such blatant evil that one could almost believe that one's own secret sins didn't matter. Do you under, do you get what she's saying? That there's so much sin, in that case, the sin of the Nazis, that in, in, that, that, that's so blatant and it's in your face that it's easy to lose sight of your own sin, to think that you don't have any. And it's the same way for us. It is so out there, in your face. I had the Celtics game on yesterday, and they, up comes a commercial, and I didn't grab the remote to mute it fast enough, and I can't believe the stuff they're saying on a commercial for one of their new shows. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. It's so out there and in your face. And it's easy for us to forget that we have sin too. Remember what I said about self-righteousness last week? It's easy to develop a self-righteous attitude toward that because of what we see out there so that we neglect what's really in here. Joseph, seeing all of the oppression and everything else, it would have been easy for him to neglect the reality of his own sin, and yet we find that he didn't. The fear of the Lord. That's what he had. Exodus 20, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, and that you may not sin. Having a reverence and a respect for God is one of the ways in which we resist temptation. And so the focus of Joseph and the focus of Moses, and we'll see later, uh, the focus of Jesus, Paul, and others, is on God. By faith, fearing God. By faith, um, fearing Him precisely because that with Him there is forgiveness, as it says in Psalm 130. We see in Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And so, 
as we think about this, okay, we have this ungodliness, these desires within us. We have these worldly passions within us. And yet the grace of God is at work training us to renounce or say no to these things precisely so that we can live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the here and in the now. And so grace is teaching us to say no to our sinful desires. It recognizes their sinfulness, just as Joseph did, but it also recognizes God's mercy towards us in Christ Jesus. The grace of God is what teaches us, it says. And so where is the grace of God found? It is displayed in the cross. And so the cross displays to us the sinfulness of our sin, but also the love and mercy of the Savior. And it is as we meditate upon that, as we refocus our hearts upon that in the midst of temptation, that we begin to have the power to resist that temptation. But it wasn't a one-time thing, was it? Moses says every day, Relentlessly. This is something that I think helps us to understand what it says in Hebrews 2. Remember that phrase that I brought up before. For it is fitting that he, for, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering, or mature through suffering. Obedience is learned through temptation. That is hard for us to get sometimes. Matthew 4. What happens right before Satan comes and says, if you are the Son of God, turn this rock into bread? After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came. Jesus' obedience for us was done within the context of legitimate temptation. He was hungry because he fasted for 40 days. If he was full, there'd be no temptation. That's what makes Joseph's obedience significant. He's not a eunuch. He's a young man. He doesn't suffer from low T. Okay? It's obedience. It's the resisting of temptation that takes place. Okay? Obedience only takes place ultimately within the context of temptation to do the opposite, to disobey. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that we pursue temptation. We are not to pursue it. We are to be wise. But we're to recognize that temptation is the opportunity not just for disobedience, but obedience. That when temptation comes, we are to meet it with the gospel. And we need practice in doing that. Remember? Trains us to. People who play piano here, do you know why they play piano so well? They practiced. 
They practiced even when they didn't want to practice. Then they were tempted to do something else. They practiced. The only way we learn how to walk in obedience is by being in those moments when we're tempted not to obey. And making use of the grace of God, appropriating it through faith, through prayer, so that we stand firm. Obedience is not a hot house flower. It's like a desert flower. There's not a whole lot of rain. Okay? It recognizes, we, we are to recognize, first off, that our Father warns us of danger. That's what the law does. It, one of the things it does is it warns us of danger. This, is, this will harm, harm you. But not only that, we see that Jesus died to deliver us from that sin. But even more, we see in Hebrews 2 that He helps us now. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted or tested. Okay? Jesus... As, as the writer of Hebrews goes, what a great and faithful high priest he is for us because he was tempted in every way, just like us, yet was without sin. And here's the great, he doesn't say, man, you're such a weak failure. He says, let me help you. It's very different. He is present with us in the midst of our temptation and is willing to help us if we, by faith, ask Him to. But so often we forget He's there, and we don't bother to ask. The allure of Vanity Fair is too great, and we succumb. So obedience is learned in the crucible of temptation, but Jesus stands beside us. Last part of this, which is... Slightly similar to the first, but not completely. Injustice is met with the faithfulness of God. What we see happen here is that deception again rears its ugly head in Genesis. Once again, there's clothing involved. No goats this time, but we have clothing. Okay. But what happens is she grabs him and begins to try and pull off his clothes that she might satisfy her desires, and he runs. Now, Moses makes clear he's there to do his work. Unfortunately, no one else was in the house at that point in time. But he had to do his work. And so he's trying to be faithful. Sometimes temptation comes in the midst of you being faithful. He does what he should do. He runs away and his his outer garment is left with her. Now, what is surprising to me is that she did not use this to blackmail him. I'll tell. I have proof. I'm amazed she doesn't do that. What she does do, though, is cry out, Help! Help! Scorned, she's now going to accuse him of attempted rape, which carries a far more, well, a very harsh penalty, shall we say. Interesting how her 
her um, accusation goes. He brought among us a Hebrew. And later when she talks to her husband, Potiphar, when he comes home, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought, and so there's a sense in which in both these instances, she's blaming him, she's playing that old Genesis 3 card, it's not my fault, it's your fault. She's ignoring the fact that she was the one who was lusting. She's trying to frame an innocent man, and what she plays in the midst of this is the race card. The Hebrew... She's playing into their racist fears. Egyptians didn't like anybody who wasn't Egyptian. Okay? They had been at various points conquered from some other cultures, and so they, they, had, they were very, fairly xenophobic, fear of foreigners, those of you who haven't learned that one. Um, and so she's playing upon this, to, increase, to, to use their fear against Joseph and for her. That this will, this will blind people to the reality. You know what? I'm sure most of these guys who worked in the house probably knew what she was really like. But she plays that card. Racism is not a white man's sin. It is not a simply American sin. It is a fallen human sin. There is, as far as I know, no culture that has been immune from racism. And we have to recognize that. Every culture has been tainted by this heinous sin, and here she uses it. We also have to recognize that accusation does not equal guilt. But sometimes when these two things are stuck together, reason gets tossed out the window. I can think of two instances, prominent instances in my lifetime, when these two things have been combined and the media has just made an uproar about them. I think of Tawana Brawley. Nothing happened to Tawana Brawley. I think of the Duke case where these young men's lives were ruined over a false accusation. Can't take that back. You need to be wise and prudent in the face of an accusation and study the details. Not jump to automatic guilt. We need to be wise. The text says that Potiphar became angry. But we're not really sure what he became angry about. Some of the Hebrew there, and, and what she says is a little vague, that he brought the, her, he brought the Hebrew slave here to sport with me. That word can be um, to sport with, to jest. It could also mean to mock. It's used in the, in the context of um, Ishmael mocking uh, Isaac as a youth. But it's also used when we find um, Isaac sporting with Rebecca when they're supposed to be brother and sister. Okay? So it could be that she's claiming that Potiphar brought Joseph there for her, or he, she could be saying that he came here to make 
mockery of me, to insult me. We're not really sure. And so we're not really sure what Potiphar is mad at because Moses doesn't tell us, but his face becomes red, he becomes angry, and Joseph is not dead, but tossed into prison. Unjustly imprisoned. Just like Israel would later be unjustly oppressed based on racism, Remember Genesis 1, Exodus 1. There came a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And because the Jews had grown so pop, populous, they had grown so numerous that he was afraid of them, that they would side with their enemies. And so they enslaved them. Fear, racism, ugly things. We see Christ himself unjustly convicted, unjustly punished, and oppressed and killed for our salvation. And we can expect that we too, at times, will unjustly be accused and punished. I think of the political climate and the false accusations made against Christians right now. It happens. We shouldn't be surprised, and we shouldn't be overly concerned. It's been going on for thousands of years. Let's not sweat it a whole lot, okay? But here we see this again. I want us to note this, that even though we suffer unjustly, God is not unconcerned. If he is our Father, he weeps with us. You know, watching my son... With surgery this week, okay, you know, he didn't deserve, so to speak, to be born with a cleft palate and to need numerous surgeries, and yet here he is suffering for this, and it breaks my heart as his dad, and I hate it. And there were hours when I couldn't leave the bed where he just, all he could do was hold my hand. It's all he wanted to do. And if I, if I tried to go and get water or anything, he would be upset. And as I think about who God is and his promises, never to leave you, never forsake you, when we're suffering unjustly, it's like as if he's holding our hand. He is there. Doesn't take the pain away, but he's there. He's with us. Because Moses says, the Lord was with him and showed him steadfast love. Hesed, that good old covenant love word that we find. God was faithful to him. God showed him love. God kept his promises. And once again, God exalts Joseph within the prison jail. The prisons. He becomes the chief the, the chief chief trustee of the prison, so to speak. And as we look at this week and next week, I want you to see that it is the pit, it is the prison where our inexplicable suffering, it is there that we learn of the depths of His love. December 1944, her sister Betsy 
is laying down, dying outside of the hospital in the prison camp. Betsy tells her, before the end, before the first of the year, we will be free. Okay? And this is what she says. We must tell them that there is no pit so deep, but Christ is deeper still. That's what Betsy learned in Ravensbrook. That's what she wanted Corey to remember in Ravensbrook. And that's what she wanted Corey to tell everyone when she got out of Ravensbrook, which she did before the new year. Difficult circumstances tempt us to doubt the love of God. And in that doubt and fear, we, are, we find the temptation to illegitimate pleasure, to feel better. Living by faith means believing God is there because He promised to be there. Living by faith means learning to obey because we love and trust God. It is in the midst of the hardships at the bottom of the pit that we discover the depths of His love and that the, the length of His arm is not too short to save us. He is not only at the top of the mountains, but He is also in the deepest canyons with His people. Let's pray. Father, um, in some ways not an easy message to uh, bring. Not an easy message to hear. Because there is a lot within us resists that, that really struggles with that because of the bent of the flesh and the lies of the evil one. We recognize that he is just like Potiphar's wife, relentless in speaking lies and pursuing us and tempting us. Help us to see how much greater Jesus is. Help us to see how much greater is his help. Help us to see how much greater His compassion, His love. That we might be able to stand firm under testing and temptation. Because we have our eyes fixed upon Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the shame, despite the shame that was before Him, thought nothing of it and went to the cross. And we ask this in His name. Amen.